Gold and silver are going apeshit. Hello, this is the QTR Podcast. Today is July 24th, 2020. This is a special Friday night edition of the podcast. Very happy to be with you. First and foremost, I want to shout out the people that make this podcast possible. My patrons. Patrons are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. I'm going to shout out some supporters of the podcast, and then we're going to get the damn show on the road. First and foremost, folks, do you know that only 1% of day traders actually turn a profit? Which I'm not surprised by, by the way. Why are many of us mistaking picking stocks for serious investing? You can't control the markets, but you can control your risks. Billionaires do that by investing in blue chip art. If it sounds crazy to you, trust me, it sounded crazy to me too a couple of months ago. But the ultra wealthy have been investing in art for centuries. And since 2000, art has outperformed the S&P by 180%. The problem is if you're broke as a joke like I am, how the hell are you going to go out and invest in the same types of priceless works of art that are, you know, tens of millions, sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars. Masterworks.io allows you to do that. It's an exclusive platform that allows you to essentially buy shares in certain paintings. It makes investing in art as easy as trading stocks online. You don't need to know anything about art, folks. I'm living proof of that. I don't know anything about it. Their experts will create a custom portfolio to meet your investment needs masterworks.io you don't need to choose between big risks and big returns if you go to masterworks.io and you select podcast you can skip the 70,000 person wait list to get first dibs masterworks.io it is a very cool concept we had the CEO on the podcast a couple months ago Scott Lynn make sure you read their disclaimer at masterworks.io slash disclaimer the link is in the podcast description Also, folks, I want to make a side note here before I talk about JM Bullion, which is my exclusive gold and silver provider. When Masterworks reached out and said they wanted to sponsor an individual episode, I said no problem because it is a platform that I use. I have an account there. I just bought uh, shares in my second work of art this week, which I am stoked about. I tweeted about that today. Um, And with JM Bullion, it's the same deal. I use JM Bullion as my exclusive gold and silver provider, not because they support the podcast, but because also I have used their platform and I like it. JM Bullion has been in business for a decade. They have a fantastic reputation, which is well-earned and well-deserved. They've done over $3 billion in sales. They turn around orders very quickly. And QTR podcast listeners, if you are interested in gold and silver bullion, and now is the time to be interested, in my opinion, I'm not a financial advisor, you can email Kathy, K-A-T-H-Y, at jmbullion.com. She is there exclusively for QTR podcast listeners. So if you never bought bullion before, you have questions, you want some individualized service instead of just going on a website and placing your order, which works beautifully, by the way, anyways, you can reach out to Kathy, ask her for free shipping, ask her for $5 off your order, tell her QTR sent you. Um, But if you're interested in gold and silver bullion, check out my friends at JM Bullion. Again, I like to be able to honestly say that the people that support my podcast are people that are honest people and have services that I use and or have vetted myself. I have turned down Patreons and I have turned down people that have offered to sponsor episodes because I don't use their product or service, or I think that they're a scam artist. There's been certain financial products or services, but I've told them, 
take their money and take a hike. So if you ask me, it's really the best way to do podcast monetization because my Patreons are completely voluntary and I thank you guys so much. There's people that have told me over the last couple of weeks that they need to uh, unsign up for Patreon because of the uh, financial effects of COVID. I just want you to know, I'm just humbled by the fact that you would contribute. The dollar amount doesn't matter. The length of time you contribute doesn't matter. I thank you guys so much because you make the podcast possible. Um, And when it comes to the first 10 minutes of the podcast, you know, oftentimes I am talking about people that make it possible, but I never interrupt the podcast in the middle of the podcast. People give me shit about doing stuff on the pre-roll, and I say, listen, once we get started, we never interrupt. I hate when fucking people do that in the middle of a podcast. They throw in an advertisement. Um, so this is the best way to do it in terms of monetization and getting you the content that you want. Me being able to truthfully speak my mind and be intellectually honest with the people that I support. That shit is really important to me because we're talking about an industry that's full of pricks and scumbums and dickheads and dweebies and what is she saying, Ferris Bueller? Sportos and dweebies and dickheads. They all want to advertise. They think I'm a righteous dude. (laughs) Speaking of which, let's talk about two more of my friends, Sang Lucci and Pete Hegedus. Pete Hegedus runs the Trader's Path, which is a investing community set up to welcome people that may be disillusioned, unhappy with other types of trading communities and financial services, any kind of product probably that's selling you on technical analysis. Pete started the Trader's Path because he wanted to come up with a investing and day trading community kind of for the rest of us. Um, He offers investor education, investor advocacy. He offers daily watch lists, a live stream. It's just a wonderful community of honest people to have around you. If you're looking to bounce ideas off people, if you are a day trader, man, it is great to have this type of resource, especially now with the markets being as volatile as they are. My buddy Pete Hedges over at the Trader's Path is an honest guy. He's a Liverpool supporter, so I know he's having a great week. I talk to him on the regular. He has been a huge advocate for the QTR podcast and supporter of our message. So if you've ever thought about joining a day trading community, check out the Trader's Path. Link is in the podcast description. Finally, I want to shout out my homeboy Sang Lucci and the Sang Lucci Steam Room, which is the best piece of software ever created, in my opinion, to track money coming into the options market. The Sang Lucci Steam Room, these guys were the first people to ever fucking do it when it comes to tracking options flow. Okay, they were doing it 10 years ago before unusual options activity was a big feature that's been placed on a lot of new trading platforms. They have been cultivating their software, the Steam Room, for a decade now. It is aesthetically pleasing. It is fun to use. It tells you where the money is going in the options market. That can be important because oftentimes it can predicate moves in the equities market i.e. give you some idea as to what's about to happen in the stock market. The Steam Room's a wonderful product that can pay for itself if you don't trade like a herb. And uh, Lucci is an honest guy. His partner, Charlie Bathgate, very good friends of mine, honest people to do business with. If you reach out to them personally and tell them QTR sent you, as well as with my buddy Pete, they will make sure that you get a discount. They will make sure that you get uh, a free trial of the product if you'd like. Tell them I sent you. This podcast also brought to you by some of my newest patrons, people like Jake Dirk Cole, David Harvey, Pawnbroker.com, thank you for checking in. Joseph Romo, Brian Zussi, Adam Countryman, Margot Cosia, Derek, Andrew Harrington, Jamil Akhtar, thank you guys for signing up. 
recently and some of my patrons that have been with me for a while that continue to support the podcast like Peter Schwartz and Mick Dosty. My friend Pete Yarborough is still supporting me, which I uh, appreciate very much. Scott Nelson and John Edwards still in the house. Thank you guys. Jeff Barnes, uh, Jay Mincemeyer. What's up, brother? Thank you guys for your continued support of the QTR podcast because our message, you know, when you are advocating for something that goes against the grain, whether you're talking about the world of finance or you're talking about the world of politics or news and you're up against the mainstream media, whether it's the mainstream regular media or the mainstream financial media, it's a fucking project. Okay, it's a project because a you don't get any love from the mainstream media. Number one, obviously, you're not going to be seeing me on CNBC anytime soon. I think that time spot has now been filled by Dave Portnoy, which I'm fine with. Number two, when you are trying to get the truth out or what you believe is the truth and it stands at odds sometimes, whether it's politically or financially with the people that control all of the tools that are used by content creators, it can sometimes be very challenging. It's like being a short seller, really. You're rolling a giant boulder up a hill. And so that's why the support is so appreciated and why it's so necessary. And the people that really have the courage to come on and support the podcast, uh, you know, my listeners, I think they really appreciate it, judging by the feedback that my patrons have given me. Um, the podcast sends a lot of people in their direction, which is great. Um, and I think that they deserve it for having the courage to come on and support what it is that we talk about when sometimes it's not the most popular, uh, stance out there. So, uh, reward those people that support the podcast by giving them a play. If you're going to buy some gold anyways, why not check out JM Bullion? If you're interested in new trading software, why not check out Sanglucci or Pete Hedges? You know, if you've ever thought about dabbling in the art world, why not check out Masterworks? And again, these are all products that I use. I mean, I have an account at Masterworks. I've invested with them, right? I have, uh, I've used their platform to invest in priceless works of art. I don't know what I'm doing, but that's besides the point. It's not going to stop me from throwing some money at some painting. Finally, I am not a financial advisor. This is not financial advice. And this podcast has a two drink minimum. It's Friday night, so I'm not as worried about the two drink minimum as I would be during the week. So I'm not even going to reiterate it other than saying I trust that you guys are doing the right thing. (laughs) Listen, there's a lot of things that I want to cover today. Um, But it's interesting that Masterworks wanted to support an episode. Uh, They just wanted to support one episode here. But it it came at a very interesting time because I was on a podcast earlier this week and it was like a roundtable discussion. One of the guys was asking, when is this inflation going to start showing up? I was making the case that inflation is rampant now that the money supply is expanding significantly. And the guy at the roundtable that I was talking to didn't really understand that inflation was happening, I guess, because the you know a gallon of milk hasn't doubled over the last two weeks. So as we were talking about it, one of the things that I brought up was the uh, art market. The art market has seen this crazy appreciation, as have other things that I would never in a million years own. Like I was reading an article a couple of months ago about a scotch collection that sold for something ridiculous, like $60 million dollars. 
Sotheby's, some old guy died and his scotch collection spanning like 200 years and I don't know anything about it. Look, if I want to get a buzz on, I can go across the street right now and buy a bottle of scotch for $7. That's about all I know about the world of scotch. But apparently some old guy who had a massive collection of like some of the world's rarest scotch, he died and then his collection was auctioned off by Sotheby's for something like $60 million. So when people ask you where the inflation is, two great places to point would be the art market and the scotch market. And what does that mean? It means that there is another human being out there. Just think about this one right now, all right? Hopefully you're not too stoned. I know it's Friday night. But just think about this one. There is somebody out there with so much money that they spent $60 million or whatever it is on a scotch collection or $100 million on a painting. You know, an amount of money that 1% of would be life-changing for the average person. So when you tell me there's no inflation, there's inflation. Look, if you look at inflation the same way I do, you're looking at it as an expansion of the money supply. You know, you can't say that there's no inflation just because the cost of cheese hasn't gone up when the M2 money supply is up, I don't know, whatever it is, 20% year over year or something ridiculous. The inflation is the expansion of the money supply. The money will get around as the inequality gap widens and the rich become richer. You're going to see more and more headlines of super rich people buying more super yachts, paying more for priceless works of art, buying more scotch collections. Look, if you ever want to look at a listing of shit that nobody needs to own, just look at a Sotheby's auction. I mean, pick up the auction guide for the year and just look at the shit that they auction off. A lot of things dated, you know, 1862. General George Washington's first shoelace, you know, $282,000. Thank you very much. You know, there's fucking people lined up around the block for it. There's only one of these. It is a historical artifact. It's like you don't need every booger that every guy in history has ever had. All right, sometimes it's just good to throw things out. Today we're selling George Washington's wooden teeth. $13.52 million. It's like, ew. <laughs> you know, if, like, if somebody offered me the remains of King Tut, it's been mummified for 5,000 years. It's a historical artifact. I don't fucking want that. I mean, assuming I can't turn around immediately and resell it for some ridiculous amount of money, what the hell am I going to do with that? You know, what am I going to do with that? I've got the remains of the uh, Egyptian king. I keep them in my kitchen in between the food processor and the crock pot. Honus Wagner, first baseball card ever made, signed by Honus Wagner, Guy that no one has ever heard of, but for the fact that he's on the world's most expensive baseball card. Uh, $14.96 billion, you know? All right, put me down. I'm bidding for the Honus Wagner. Well, what do you do after you get it? I don't know. I just take it at home and I keep it in my safe. And then I got a fucking baseball card I got to worry about for the rest of my life. Whether or not, you know, the air in my house, I have to, I have to turn my house into a humidor so that the uh, thing doesn't disintegrate and I don't watch $14 billion or whatever I pay for it go up in smoke. Folks, these things that are being sold at these auction houses are proof positive of inflation, all right? It's out there. A, you have people with too much fucking money. And look, I don't mean we need to redistribute it. I'm not a socialist, all right? 
but I just mean in general. If you got $60 billion, your worldview gets skewed a little bit. And I imagine it's difficult to find importance in any material things at that point. I mean, maybe that's why people turn to these alternative assets, as they're called. Maybe there is some... Uh, maybe there's some aesthetic to them that gives a, a billionaire a little bit of a tingle, you know. But I mean, the the, the point is, you can go out and you can buy uh, the White Album by the Beatles somewhere, anywhere, for, you know, $20 on Amazon. But if you want to buy a limited edition first pressing, uh, you know, for $6 million, it's like, all right, well, now I've got the first pressing. I mean, I guess if you're like a Beatles fan... That's a huge deal, but who spends money on that shit? So when I was having this roundtable discussion with these other investors and they were saying there's no inflation, I said, look at things like the alternative asset market. Another great example, Michael Jordan's shoes that were just auctioned off after the last dance sold for, I think, $300,000 or something insane. The, uh, the high tops that he wore while he was playing... And I guess if your plan is to buy it and then turn around and resell it at a certain point, that's that's a strategy. I understand that. I, I, I wouldn't understand buying the shoes to, what, keep them at the house, put them on display? I mean, I guess. Here's the shoes. They've been worn, and they're signed by Michael Jordan. Sir, what would you like me to do with them? I don't know. Put them in the kitchen next to fucking King Tut and the toaster oven. And while you're over there, make me some toast, because I can actually do something with toast. I can eat it, which will give me sustenance, which will help me get through the rest of the day, and should give me enough energy to spend the rest of the day trying to find a buyer for the Michael Jordan sneakers that I just acquired that I want to sell, because that is not exactly a liquid market. Somebody said to me on Twitter today when I was talking about Masterworks, and I was talking about why I had uh, opened an account with them and why I was, you know, really just a very nominal amount of money, but I am poking around kind of investing. I think it's fun to kind of invest in these alternative assets like art. Art is something I've always wondered about. If you listen to my interview with their CEO, Scott Lynn, it's something that kind of I, I, I always... I always found it interesting, specifically art from people that have passed away. And we talked about on that podcast how I kind of view them as historical artifacts as well. So there is some interest there, but I don't have any interest in hanging up a fucking Picasso at my house. You could hand me a Picasso painting right now, and I couldn't be less interested in anything. But I like the idea that there is appreciation in that market, um, traditionally, as central banks have continued to print and print and print, uh, as I said in the uh, advertisement up front, that that market and that asset class has risen significantly. So that gives it some appeal to me. And the fact that my shares are liquid also gives it some appeal to me. The last thing I want to be doing is buying a 60,000-year-old bottle of scotch and then have to fucking sit at home and worry about it and whether or not somebody's going to break in and steal a bottle that represents, you know, 100% of my net worth. And then when I want to liquidate it, you know, say say you're the guy that bought the $60 million scotch collection. I mean, say all your other business investments go ass up at some point and you wind up reaching a point of financial distress. Well, what do you got to do to liquidate? You got to go out and find the only other guy 
in the world that would be willing to pay $60 million for a scotch collection at auction. Otherwise, you're going to lose money. You got to find Mohammed bin Salman, right? The, 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 the Saudi prince who paid $450 million for the uh, Da Vinci that we were talking about on that podcast, right? So the illiquidity is definitely a problem. Look, if you want to gauge inflation, just look at the price of gold. Look at the purchasing power of the dollar. Look at the money that has been printed. That was one of the things that we were talking about. This guy kept saying, prices aren't going up. Prices aren't going up. There's no inflation. And I was like, the prices of the assets that you're looking at are not going up. The CPI is not registering uh, you know, price appreciation. The CPI doesn't look at how much a Salvador Dali painting costs. Okay, that's not included in the PCE deflator. So when you're using that line of argument, uh, you know, it's just much simpler. As Peter Schiff says, it's much simpler to look at the expansion of the money supply. That is the definition of inflation. It's like a company issuing new shares, as I said on my last podcast with him. It dilutes the purchasing power of the dollars that have already been printed. And that's all you need to know. In the stock market, you would call it dilution. In the world of money, I call it inflation, and it's called inflation. It's not just me that calls it that. God, I'm starting to sound like President Trump. OPEC plus. I call it OPEC plus. It's uh, OPEC uh, plus some other people. I call it OPEC plus. It's not just you that calls it OPEC plus. Everybody's been calling it OPEC plus before you started, you know. I. It's, he always says that. I call it. I call it clean coal. Not just you. You don't call it clean coal. It was called clean coal before you figured it out. I call it clean coal. I call it tremendous. A little something I call the plague. <laughs> like he's just inventing these terms. I call it the stock market. Ever heard of it? I just made it up. Sometimes he has these uh, big long pauses too when he's giving a speech or he's interviewing with somebody. Where he'll say, I call it, and then there's this just blank pause while his brain kind of cycles through all these different brain farts of things that he can come up with. And I'm convinced that he just throws things out there to be reactionary sometimes. When he said Kung Flu at uh, wherever that was for one of the speeches that he gave, I forget where he first said Kung Flu, but it was one of those times where he just said, you know, I call it. The Kung Flu, the Chinese virus, the Chinese plague, the Wuhan virus, the Wuhan flu. I think he is literally improvising. Should be an interesting set of debates coming up here in November, undoubtedly. Uh, That is something I can't wait for. But let's continue our discussion about inflation real quick. As I'm sure you saw this week, the price of gold and silver both went bananas. Gold broke through 1900, which officially puts it up 50% since I screamed about it after three Moscow mules at 10 in the morning during the Art of Short Selling event that took place in May of 2018. And my argument for gold has always been very simple. One, I don't buy the fact that the Fed knows what they're doing. So I've said this a million times. It's a question of whether or not, you know, and, and this can be boiled down to a very simple concept. This is what's interesting about looking at things from the Austrian perspective. First off, since it's not the mainstream, since it's not the main way of thinking, I mean, let's just look at it from a philosophical standpoint. Why is Keynesian economics and why do MMT 
gain such favor? They gain favor because it allows human beings to manipulate the very basic rules of the economy and the very basic rules of finance, things like supply and demand. And when you can control the markets and you can control the supply of money and you can control interest rates, what you can do is really overdraw your account in the sense that you can put forth all of these government programs and make all these promises as a politician that you can't pay for, but that will ultimately get you reelected because the people that don't understand how things are being paid for, or in this case, not paid for or monetized, because they don't understand that, they're just going to vote for the person that is advocating for these things. But there are very real consequences behind the scenes. So Keynesianism is kind of secretly behind the scenes beating the shit out of the actual economy and like a person at a bar, like a belligerent drunk at a bar racking up this huge tab that eventually is going to have to come due and it will come due in real money. And that will be a huge problem when we get to it, an enormous problem. But for the time being, Keynesianism puts this, you know, not only does it enable us to take distort the economy and do it in a fashion where crony capitalism can take place and the citizens of the country think that the central bank and the government have control over the economy when they really don't. Not only does it give that impression, it puts a layer of complex jargon and complication over what is a very simple concept. I mean, the economy is relatively simple. It's on its face, it's a, you know, it's a series of many transactions that take place. You can compare somebody's personal balance sheet like what you have in your wallet right now to a corporation's balance sheet to the country's balance sheet. They're all different sizes, but you would want to run one the same way you would want to run the other. Think of yourself personally as a business. What you want to do is you want to spend less than you bring in so that you're able to save money and you want to have some liquidity on you and you don't want to carry a lot of debt. That's the same way you would want to run a corporation and it's the same way that you would want to run a country if you wanted that country to be rich, if you wanted the country to be wealthy, if you wanted the country to be prosperous. So it's really quite simple. I mean, fiscal policy should be quite simple. The uh, economy should be quite simple. Prices should go up. Prices should go down. There should be booms. There should be busts. You know, the consumer has the power in a free market. All of those things are very simple. Supply and demand, price discovery, very simple concepts. Saving in order to have money for investment going forward. And again, under consumption, all very simple concepts, probably concepts that you would apply at home. If you are running a household, what do you want to do? You want to increase your savings, increase your retirement, increase the amount of money that your family has so that in the future it's available to them if they ever need it. You want to have equity in your home. So you want your personal balance sheet to look like a corporation's balance sheet that you would run or if you were the president of the United States, you would want it to look like the country's balance sheet. Low debt, big cash position, 
you know, perhaps some select investments, uh, generating a lot of cash. You want positive cash flow. You want, uh, you know, you want to turn a consistent profit. And you can do that by increasing the amount of money you bring in or by cutting the amount of spending that you partake in. But either way, the economy is not that difficult to figure out. When you lay the blanket of Keynesianism over the economy, everything becomes much more complicated because humans have overthought the economy to some degree, number one. I mean, you can argue, all right, well, more transparency is better. So all of the macroeconomic indicators that we have just give us a better visualization and better picture of the economy as a whole. Okay, that can be helpful. But the idea of price fixing the cost of capital, which is what we do when we rig interest rates, and the idea of giving politicians and the government and people in power the flexibility to go out and make promises that they can't back up becomes a huge road for a moral hazard and becomes a huge problem. It's akin to giving a gambler new lines of credit uh, every week, every month, every year. We raise the debt ceiling, we print more money. I mean, that is not a sustainable way to take a long-term focus on making the country rich at some point. We don't produce anything in the country anymore, right? We buy everything from China. And all of our problems, because we've been so irresponsible with the way that we have managed the economy, all of the problems like the one we're experiencing now when the country should really be going through, you know, think about think about World War II. Again, Peter Schiff always brings up this analogy, but what was different? One of the things he talked about in the Rogan podcast is he, he talks about, he compares World War II to now, to the COVID pandemic. And he explains how the government needed to borrow money from its citizens in order to fund the war. And not only did it borrow money, but it also borrowed their labor and their resources. Um, The difference then was we had sound money, which means the government couldn't print it. If the government could have just printed money then, it would have printed money. Then we would be in a totally different place now, 70 years later, 60 years later. Why did we want to have sound money? Well, we wanted to have sound money because we didn't want to print money to solve our problems because of the inflationary problems that doing that would cause. So what is different now? Now we think we can just replace the economy with unlimited printed money from the Fed and everything's going to be fine and there's going to be no consequences. And that's bullshit. And that bullshit is hidden under this blanket of jargon and uh, complicated nonsense masquerading as Keynesianism and and modern monetary theory. I mean, we have people like Rashida Tlaib out there that want to print a trillion dollar coin. They think in her mind that makes sense to her. In her mind, she thinks the Fed can just create a trillion dollar coin. She's conflating purchasing power with the amount of money in circulations. You know, that's not generating any new purchasing power. It's just redistributing the already existing purchasing power and will drive prices higher. Ultimately, I saw Ayanna Presley, who was another representative, posted, I think yesterday, cancel rent, cancel mortgages, cancel student debt. Look, it's not a fucking blockbuster video membership. You can't just cancel it. I mean, there are consequences and repercussions economically for doing that. I'm assuming by canceling it, she doesn't mean default on the lenders. She means the Fed should print the money and we should monetize it. 
First off, the idea of canceling mortgages and canceling rent is asinine. What about people that have bought property for a living and that's how they make their living? They are property owners. Say you're a real estate company and you go out and you acquire a, uh, you pay $10 million for an apartment complex and you make $2 million a year in rent and your goal is to pay off the purchase in five years with the cash that you're going to generate um, and maybe reinvest some of it to make improvements, but you're reliant on the stream of cash that comes forward from that, right? You have one of two situations. One is you're asking people to either default, in which case that landlord gets screwed, or you're going to ask the Fed to monetize this somehow distribute money to people or keep track of who owes what mortgages where. I mean, it's a huge clusterfuck and the government is really the last entity you want in charge of that. On top of that, if you don't stiff the landlord, if assuming that's not what she's talking about, and I would love to hear her complex policy prescription on exactly how this is going to happen. Assuming you don't stiff the landlord, then you got to print the money. And what happens when you print the money? Well, then everybody suffers. It results in a loss of purchasing power for those people that already have money, which means that the money that the landlord is going to be paid back in from his tenants or her tenants is going to be worth less than the money that they used to pay for the building up front. So instead of having to make back $10 million to pay off your $10 million investment in free cash, when prices rise, he may need to make back $11 $11 million or $12 million. And that slow, kind of steady deduction of purchasing power behind the scenes is just one way that the system is rigged that people don't understand it. So you have a system that hides that inflationary tax from people, which is a tax that people are paying and they don't even know about it. And you have a economic system that is should be very simple, but is cloaked and shrouded in all of these complex financial terms. I mean, it's a textbook example of overthinking something and intellectual snobbery. I mean, you should hear some of the prescriptions that people have for dealing with the national debt. You got guys like Paul Krugman out there trying to justify having $26 trillion in debt. It's money that we owe to ourselves, he says, right? I watched a debate on MSNBC some years back where Peter Schiff was debating this woman who's a socialist and she was really justifying the fact that the country, I think then was, I don't know, 15 trillion or 20 trillion dollars in debt, but she was justifying it. And Peter Schiff made a very simple point on that interview. He said, you don't pay off debt by taking on more debt. If you want to pay off debt, right? If you're not trying to just inflate it away, This again goes back to whether or not inflation is a good idea and the cornerstone of a healthy economy, which of course it isn't. But if you want to pay off your debt, the idea is you have to underconsume and you have to save up more money in order to pay off the debt. Obviously, you took the debt on because you wanted to invest. Maybe that investment didn't go well, or maybe you're not getting the returns from the investment that you hope to turn it into a good carry trade for you. But the idea is you have to underconsume to pay off that debt. You don't just take more debt on to pay off the original debt. I mean, that's why companies eventually file for bankruptcy because they lever and lever and lever and lever and they become the 35 millionth oil company in the Permian Basin or they become, 
you know, WeWork, which is just, uh, you know, 10 million private equity companies marking up their books and selling each other the same flaming bag of dog shit until eventually it gets to a point where somebody says, "Uh uh-uh, not buying it. The buck stops here. For WeWork, it was the public markets. They took one look at that prospectus. The public market took one look at that. And this is saying something, too, because we live in unprecedented times of euphoria. And this was going on before COVID. Even then, that market, the frothiest of bull markets, looked at that IPO prospectus and threw up in its mouth. You know? It was like, there's no way. There's no way the public market's going to say, and think all the Think of all the garbage that has IPO'd over the last five years. Think of all the non-cash generating, you know, just absolute dog shit companies that are out there. And they said, we work, it's not happening. The buck eventually stops, right? Keynesianism and the Fed are kind of hoping that the buck will never stop. They're hoping that the check won't come due. They're hoping that at some point there won't be any consequences. They're hoping that they have figured out the secret formula to rig the economy in favor of the rich and in favor of the politicians. And that's exactly what's going on now. But at the end of the day, it's not going to last. It's going to fucking end at some point. This is what I was saying in October of last year when I was speaking in Vegas. I was saying... You know, either you believe the Fed knows what it's doing or you believe that the Fed is running the biggest long con in human history and it's fractional reserve banking and it's central banks. And that is exactly what is going on. We've just been told, and again, we have this prisoner's dilemma with all the central banks where everybody buys in, so they're all encouraging each other that they all have it right. At some point, somebody will defect from that group of central banks and make a public statement similar to the one that I'm making, but with less profanity and less vodka in their system. But the point of the matter is, the check will come due at some point, right? To go back to my earlier point about inflation, the guys that were participating in this roundtable with me were smart people, but they thought that because prices weren't going up and they couldn't see prices going up, that inflation wasn't happening. And this is the same kind of misnomer that a lot of the American public kind of understands, which is really what's allowing the government and the Fed to get away with the nonsense that they're getting away with. If the price of bread skyrocketed or doubled over the next two weeks, people at home would notice. But when things happen like what happened to me last week happened, they notice less. What am I talking about? Well, that same day that I did that podcast... I went to Walgreens because I needed to buy some toothpaste and I picked up a box of toothpaste and I noticed something interesting. Back in the day when you would buy a box of toothpaste, it would be, I don't know, three bucks, four bucks and you would get this long uh, horizontal box with your traditional, you know, Colgate toothpaste in it. You had just the regular white kind of no frills toothpaste. And I don't know how many ounces it was. It was a certain, maybe it was 12 ounces or maybe it was, you know, 14 ounces of toothpaste. I don't know what the big ones were, the normal size ones were. But when you go to buy toothpaste now, you look at the shelves and the boxes are much smaller. Some of them are vertical now. They sit vertical on the toothpaste shelf. And I was thinking about that 
and I was actually examining my bottle of toothpaste today while I was in the bathroom. This is the shit that I do, by the way. What you guys think I'm doing fucking equations at home? I'm sitting at home, stoned, looking at my toothpaste bottle, think, trying to figure out how the world is conning us out of everything uh, and doing it very quietly. It starts with the fucking toothpaste, all right? Now I am holding a vertical bottle of toothpaste that I think was only like four ounces or six ounces, whatever. By the way, I paid $7.99 for it. Okay, it wasn't the exclusive hot shit brand toothpaste. It was just Crest whitening toothpaste. And I'm standing there looking at the bottle in the fucking bathroom. And I'm like, this is the smallest bottle of toothpaste I think I've ever owned. It is unbelievably small. I think I'm looking at my phone right now. I think if you were to stand your phone up, if you have a regular size iPhone and you were to stand it up on the table in front of you, I think the bottle of toothpaste is actually shorter than that. And it's certainly thinner than that, obviously. It's the normal toothpaste uh, width. So I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, not only did I just pay $7.99 for this, all right, but and the toothpaste isn't anything special. It's not a, you know, it's not some exclusive. It comes out of the bottle like normal. You put it on your toothbrush and you brush your teeth. There's no, you know, it's not magic toothpaste. It's not a organic. It's not gluten-free uh, toothpaste. I didn't buy it from Whole Foods. I bought it out of Walgreens. And I'm sitting there thinking, if I were to extrapolate the cost of this four to six ounces of toothpaste to what it would have cost me, I don't know, 10 years ago when I would go buy a normal bottle of toothpaste in the horizontal box, that that would be, I don't know, probably like $15. I'm probably getting half as much and I'm paying twice as much. So you're not just getting it with the price increase, you're getting it with the decrease in the amount of product that you're getting. And on a past podcast, I talk about a similar experience I had when I went to go buy candy somewhere. I was at a Wawa and I picked up a thing of candy and I realized that the candy bar was, you know, slightly smaller than it used to be. Pretty soon there's going to be no product left. Pretty soon it's going to be $100 for a product and you're going to open the bag and there's going to be nothing inside. So what you don't realize is, and and all you got to think about is this. The people at the fucking Crest Corporation or Procter & Gamble or whatever it is, They sit in focus groups and they sit in meetings and here's what they talk about. And by the way, this doesn't have to be toothpaste. This can be any product. As the price of commodities goes up and as inflation rears its head and their costs go up, what they need to do is they need to figure out how to deliver you less product for more money. And that is their goal. And they need to do that while competing still. And make the customer feel like that's not happening, which is why they hire focus groups and research and marketing and all this shit. They need to give you the product that is costing them more to make and they need to make more money on it every year because every company wants their margins to improve. Everybody, Every company wants more to drop to their bottom line and it doesn't matter whether you're making potato chips or you're selling Nissan cars or you're selling toothpaste. That is the goal. So next time you're at the supermarket, just do this little experiment. Pick up an item and look at it and say, all right, well, how many am I getting here? You know, and look at the weight too. Don't look at the quantity of the, uh, you know, amount of crackers you're getting because they'll keep the number the same, but they'll make the crackers smaller. Look at the weight of the product. Compare it to what the weight of the product was 
X amount of years ago and then divide it by the price and see how much per ounce you're paying. Because now everything wants to be, you know, artisan. Everything, everybody's got a fucking bistro at their house. Everybody's got one of those signs that says bistro in their kitchen. Everybody wants to run a bistro. So these companies can get, get away with selling you, you know, two ounces of fucking goat cheese for $43. Because if they wrap it up in some packaging that makes it look like, you know, it just came off the uh, Piazza di San Martino in Tuscany, Italy, people are going to be, oh, very impressed. It's like the bread that I buy. Normally, you would go, remember, you used to buy bread. You would just buy a loaf of bread, and all the loaves of bread looked the same. They were big, long, robust loaves of bread. Now I go to buy a loaf of bread, and it comes in this tiny little, it's, uh, if you were to physically take the bread out of the package and and just sit the loaf of bread next to a loaf of bread from 20 years ago, it would be probably half the size. It's, it comes in this little small package because that is now, it's the artisan way. That is, you know, give it some branding and some packaging to make it look like it's all natural and organic and gluten-free and all this other stuff and package it up to make it look like it is from Le Bistro and people will love it. They'll pay fucking $13 for a loaf of bread if you package it like that. So meanwhile, not only are you getting screwed with the prices, but you're getting screwed with the amount of the product that you get. I've said before, it's like when you open up a bag of potato chips. You know, you're holding a bag that's the size of a computer monitor. And when you open it up, you get nine chips. Thank you very much. And if you're a fucking Pringles person, here's an experiment, which by the way, I don't know, I haven't looked at Pringles, but I did notice they were selling smaller Pringles cans now too, which of course has to be a ploy to give you less and charge you more per chip. But if you take a normal, traditional, you know, tennis ball canister size of Pringles and you open it up now, my guess would be that the top chip is probably slightly lower down than it was 10 or 15 years ago. And of course, obviously, you're paying more. So a fun experiment if you can go and if you really have a clear memory of things that you purchased, even when you were younger, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you used to get a lot more for a lot less money. And the fact that you get a lot less for a lot more money now is just a product of the constraints that costs rising put on business. And it is a way to hide the inflationary tax that we are all paying. And so the cost of living has gone up way more, I think, than people think. Bill Fleckenstein talks about these hedonic adjustments that are done when the government tries to tell you how high up inflation is going. And these adjustments are essentially adjustments for quality. Um, Nobody really has looked into those super secret formulas. Certainly I haven't. But all I need to know is it's enough of a black box for them to go in and fuck with it. And that's what the government does. That's what the Fed does. They fuck with the numbers. I mean, Keynesianism is... Really, I mean, Keynesianism as it exists today. I'm going to get the people, the old school. That's not what Keynes wanted. Okay, let's just say the MMT people. All right, that is what that theory is based upon. It's a based upon just fudging the numbers. It's like, look at Tesla's earnings report, okay? They sold $428 million worth of regulatory credits to turn a profit this quarter. Let's give them a round of applause. Yay. All right. They turned a profit. So if you're a bag holder and you're not a fucking think for yourselfer, you go on and you parrot the 
nonsense that Tesla is this robust, you know, profitable company now that has turned a turned a profit for four straight quarters and is getting S&P inclusion and blah, 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 blah. But you're not paying attention to the fact that the company's CFO said on the conference call that they're not going to be selling regulatory credits like that going forward. And by the way, when you X those out, of course the company didn't turn a profit. So then it becomes a question of, okay, well, what are we going to do next quarter to turn the profit? Are we going to fuck with the warranty reserves again? I don't know. Maybe. Or, you know, is there something else that we can do? But... That is a microcosm of what the government is doing. We have every time we want to keep pushing forward with this idea that printing more money doesn't have any consequences, we got to pay the piper out of something else. Whether it's smaller cases of toothpaste, people don't notice that they're getting less and paying more, or it's just straight up price inflation somewhere, uh, or it's the widening of the inequality gap, or it's all of those things. There are consequences. And then, of course, there is going to be the big consequence of what we're doing. And that is why I like to own precious metal. So to circle all this back, the point of all that shit was just to tell you if you are a contrarian thinker, if you don't buy what you're being handed by the government just because they say that it's the end-all be-all and it's the solution, especially when it comes to finance, you could make that argument for a lot of things. But if you don't buy all that nonsense, then you're not exactly wheeled out into the limelight in the world of finance because the entire industry works on confirmation bias, right? CNBC had an article up a couple days ago. How does Tesla keep doing it? Another profitable quarter keeps the bears quiet. It said something like that or doesn't give the shorts much to work with. It's like, don't you guys have any CFAs that work there? Have you looked at the balance sheet, the income statement, and the cash flow statement? Because I am the world's dumbest person, and even I understand exactly why the numbers look the way that they do. So if you're in the financial news, why aren't you breaking it down for people? Why are you relying on me to take a shot of vodka and scream into a microphone like I'm doing now to deliver this? Why isn't this stuff getting out there without me? Well, it's because the industry is an echo chamber. The industry works on confirmation bias, and it's the same way with monetary theory. If we give enough Nobel Prizes to the people that peddle this nonsense, then we legitimize it. And if everybody sits around in a big monetary policy circle jerk and everybody congratulates themselves for being so smart and, you know, the, the, the person that was making the socialism argument that we should print more money to pay off the debt or take on more debt to pay off the debt or whatever the stupid argument was, they were like a PhD from somewhere. And folks, you don't need a PhD. Look, if somebody tells you that there is a way to get out of debt without any consequence to anybody else that doesn't involve paying back the debt, they're wrong. The idea is you don't want debt. You don't want to go into debt. You want to be wealthy. You want to have savings. You want to have assets. You don't want liabilities. You want your balance sheet to have some equity to it at the end of the day. So you can come up with all the intellectual jargon and nonsense that you want to try to justify the way that we're doing things now, but it doesn't take away from the fact that you pay off debt by paying off debt. And that's it. If I gave you the choice and I said, hi, podcast listener, 
Tomorrow when you wake up, you can have either a billion dollars in debt, okay, which is money that you owe to yourself, according to Paul Krugman, or a million dollars in the bank. What would you take? You would take the million dollars in the bank. Why? Very simple demonstration makes the point very clearly because having the cash and the money saved on hand is better than having the liability of needing to distribute the cash going forward. And that's a very simple concept. And you can talk and talk and talk until your face is blue and you can run models and you can talk about the PCE deflator and you can talk about the velocity of money and you can talk about whatever you want. But it doesn't change the fact that you'd rather have a million dollars in cash on your balance sheet in the bank then have a million dollars in debt that you owe. Very simple concept. Why? Because obviously you want the money because you want to be able to spend it. You want to be, be able to invest it going forward and hope that it'll generate more money. Money gives you, well, purchasing power really, gives you the freedom to improve your quality of living. It's very simple. And debt does not improve your quality of living. It's a burden on your quality of living. It forces you to under-consume even more, maybe, than you already are if you're trying to save money. And so there's no difference, like we said earlier, between you running your personal balance sheet like that and the country running its balance sheet. So if you're racking up $26 trillion in debt and you're constantly raising the debt ceiling, well, why is that good? If you were doing that in your home life, that would be terrible. That would be a path to bankruptcy, almost as a certainty. If you took on one credit card with a $5,000 limit and you paid it off with another card with a $10,000 limit, but then you racked up 10,000 and then you had to pay the interest on the 10,000 and you paid that off with a home equity loan for 20,000 and then you're paying the juice on the home equity loan and you take the 20,000, you pay off the 10 and you spend the other 10, then you got to figure out a way to pay off the $20,000 loan. And so it keeps going until the dollar amount gets higher. You keep raising your personal debt ceiling. You keep raising your personal debt ceiling. You keep raising your personal debt ceiling until one day somebody won't lend to you. And then you're no longer credit worthy. And then you have to file for bankruptcy. And it's a very simple example, but if you don't think that the country is heading down the same exact path, well, I think you're sorely mistaken. So I like to own gold and I like to own silver as hedges against all of this nonsense and bullshit, okay? Keynesianism and modern monetary theory has a track record of 40 years. Gold and silver have a track record of thousands of years. That's all I need to know. I don't need to know anything else. You want to throw in the fact that the central banks hold it in reserve? That's even better. (laughs) That's a a nice bonus to the thesis that you don't even need. So it's no surprise to me that gold and silver were fucking scorching this week. And I expect that they will continue to. Because people are realizing exactly what it is that we're saying. They understand it now. And a lot of people are just starting. So there's levels of understanding, right? There's the baseline level of adoption to be talked about on the mainstream financial media. We're not even close to being there when it comes to the metals. They're hardly even giving it a mention. Right now, the ideas that we're talking about are so contrarian. They are so outside of the financial industry echo chamber that... I would say they have been adopted by, you know, 2% of the industry, right? At 10%, prices are going to continue to go up. I think gold and silver will probably double, 
right, with 10% adoption. Then we get to a point where, you know, 30% or 40% or 50% adoption of this this type of thinking, and then all of a sudden it gets a mention here or there on the financial news media. And, it, and it, you know, it may not become the norm, but they're going to have to pay attention to it because it's going to be so obvious that ignoring it would be to ignore the entire industry. It will become the topic that everybody in the industry talks about. And then to take it one further, there's going to be a point where gold and silver are going to be the FOMO trade, the fear of missing out trade, right? That's way, 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 way down the line, but it's still there. Like right now, everybody that has bought Tesla over the last two months, three months, if you pull the Robin Hooders that have been buying it, the likely scenario is they're going to tell you they didn't want to miss out. The stock keeps going up and they didn't want to miss out. It's a FOMO trade. Doesn't matter about the fundamentals. Doesn't matter about anything. They wake up every day. Every day they see that stock is up and they think, man, I should have bought it. Yesterday I didn't. I should have bought it today and I didn't. Maybe tomorrow. And then they wake up the next day and they ignore it for one more day. All right, well, tomorrow I'm really going to buy it. And then eventually they pull the trigger. And that's why how you get a blow off top and things. That is a fear of missing out mentality. And that, believe it or not, will happen with gold and silver and with the other precious metals as the confidence in central banks continues to wane and money printing continues to occur and the prices of these commodities continue to rise, which to me, it has always been very simple. Not unlike the laws of economics themselves, it's always been very simple. The purchasing power of the dollar, the chart starts in the upper left-hand corner of your screen. It goes to the bottom right-hand corner of your screen. At the same time, a non-inflation-adjusted chart of gold has gone from the bottom left-hand corner of your screen to the upper right-hand corner of your screen. To me, you know, they are essentially the inverse of one another, which I think makes gold a fantastic vehicle to preserve your wealth if you want to hedge against inflation and also against the whole thing falling apart. If you just don't believe that the central bankers have superpowers and know what they're talking about, which of course I don't. That's why I like the metal so much. So I can't say I was surprised this week to see these moves. And I think there's more to come. But again, I'm not a financial advisor and this is not financial advice. Ladies and gentlemen, I encourage you all to do your research elsewhere. And one more time, I want to thank the people that support this podcast for making it possible for me to come on and talk some shit and really give an alternative viewpoint to what's being peddled in the mainstream media. Because whether you want to talk about finance or whether you want to talk about politics, when you know you have two, three, four networks and they're all peddling the same narrative, again, no matter what it's about, it becomes that much more important that an alternative and contrarian viewpoint is presented. All right, fools, I am out for now. I got some great stuff coming up next week. Thank you very much for spending your Friday night or your Saturday or your Sunday with me. I got shit to do. I am out. Peace.